Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I can't believe it's September. I'm just back from my vacation, which both feels like it was three months ago and also like I was gone forever. So I guess good and bad, right? Um, while I was away, NACAC uh, made an, a formal announcement that we are officially part of their NACAC podcast network. So if anyone is joining us as a result of learning about the podcast, um, because we are now part of that network, uh, welcome. We hope you'll find interesting stuff here and you might not learn anything new, but hopefully you will, or maybe you'll learn some additional things, um, uh, more nuanced to things that maybe you knew a little bit about. But um, we're going to be doing a lot of Q&A uh, later on in the show today. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking about marketing. Uh, this time of year, colleges are sending out a lot of mail. As the parent of a senior, we are getting a lot of mail in this house. In fact, my husband said the other day, like, I hope these colleges aren't touting how they are reducing their carbon footprints because uh, we are getting so much mail that they can't possibly be, and is a good point. Um, so, here I am um, joined by my colleague Kenan Dick. Kenan is and I have worked together here at College Coach for a number of years. We actually joined together, um, but he's also a former admissions officer at Swarthmore, at Drexel, and at Johnson State. Hi, Kenan. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate sure. it. Um, so when we decided that we wanted to talk about marketing and how this all works. Um, we went out and found someone on the team that we thought would be really well versed to talk about it. And you're it because you were involved at marketing in marketing at a couple of your former uh, colleges. Tell us a little bit about what, um, you know, what that looked like for you at those schools. Sure. I think um, starting with, with Swarthmore, I think that their process was fairly standard um, compared to many schools in which they would uh, purchase a whole group of names, usually uh, directly from the PSAT uh, for that junior class when they became available in November. And we would give them the parameters that we were looking for, geographic parameters, uh, score parameters, self-reported uh, GPA, etc. And from that group of uh, students, we would send out a direct mail campaign as well as an email campaign and uh, and see if they would respond to that and develop interest in Swarthmore. At Drexel, we had um, something similar, but we had kind of a multi-pronged um, effort. So we had something akin to constant contact where we're sending out emails on a regular basis. We're sending out um, university-specific information, but also college-specific and um, even sometimes, you know, we'll have, oh, this event is taking place on campus. You know, if you're interested, please come. And we have what was called a P count, which is a personal inquiry count. Mm. So every time you contacted the school, responded to one of these emails, um, had posted a question, whatever it might be, that all got recorded. 
And so that would have an effect on not only admissions, but sometimes scholarship offers. If a student had a really high P count, that was a demonstration of a higher level of interest and a higher um, yield rate than for students who had a lower P count. Right. Right. So, um, so those were kind of like, you know, I think kind of the, the, the general thrust for each one of those two schools. Um, but Drexel certainly had the much more sophisticated group of uh, efforts. Well, right, which brings up, you know, for me, my immediate thinking there is that Drexel and Swarthmore have fairly different acceptance rates, right? So um, Swarthmore is certainly getting a lot of students who are interested and turning many, many of them away. Drexel is probably working a little harder to get students interested in them and admitting more of them who do have that interest. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. And I think that what you find with the more selective schools is that it's not a general marketing campaign, right? It's more, these are our needs and it's a small subset of types of students that we're looking for. And so, you know, if we need more engineers that year, then that's the group that we're going to be focusing on. Got it. So it's usually, um, it's, it's not a, a general purpose marketing campaign as it was at Drexel, where at Drexel it was we need applications, right? right? And we also want to make sure that we're accepting the students that are more likely to come. Mm -hmm. And so they had a whole matrix of um, information about the student when they were deciding on who to give grants to, who to admit, um, based on yield rates, et cetera, and where we wanted to kind of have all of that shake out based on the institutional needs. Right. So when you think about it from that perspective, one of the things that I know you and I experience a lot and our colleagues experience a lot is we have students who we're meeting with and they come very excited because they got a piece of mail from a school often when they are very excited about this, it's from a school that is incredibly selective. And I would put Swarthmore in that category. And their immediate gut reaction is, wow, I can't believe this school wants me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so I would love to get your thoughts on, should that be the gut reaction that they have, that this school really wants me? The honest answer is, Maybe. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, the, and the hard part is that when you're making these decisions from you know, the marketing side of things, you have very limited information about that student, right? Right. So basically, you have a GPA or a self-reported GPA. Who knows how solid that is? Um, and you also have the PSAT scores. Right. So the, if there's a lot of variation. Um, and so... You know, you might have a student who has a B average and is, you know, at petty school and a really strong student at, at that school or, you know, a B plus average and at Interlake. And that's not a strong GPA for their school. Right. Mm -hmm, right. So, you know, there's a lot of um, variation in there that we can't necessarily control for. And so we're kind of doing it at the back end. Right. But um, there are definitely going to be students that are probably not terribly viable in the application pool that do get some of these um some of these mailings, yeah. Right, right. Well, and I think you're, that the point that you hit on is really the most important one, which is it is so limited, the information they have. So uh, and the, on the flip side, right, think about the students with spectacular grades and potentially super interesting things that they're involved in outside of the classroom who either didn't take the PSAT or didn't really do well on the PSAT for whatever reason, but mm -hmm. wind up presenting incredibly strong 
um, applications when it's time and they're very interested in Swarthmore. So they may never have even been part of your targeted marketing group, and yet they've emerged as a really strong candidate versus somebody who maybe scored really well on the PSAT, had okay grades. And then when you looked at the application, they didn't really do very much. Their essays maybe didn't show a whole lot of ability, writing ability, or a lot of thought, or they didn't put a lot of time into the application. There's so much more that goes into whether or not you ultimately admit a student that really this is I would encourage people to think about this as just like you are entering the widest part of the funnel at this point. And, exactly right. you know, right, you're just trying to get them, make them aware, hey, you might not have known this, but we have engineering at Swarthmore. I'm not sure that engineering is what comes to mind necessarily when you think of Swarthmore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could see how that would be something really important that you guys would want to market about. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's a great way to think about it is that like, that's the widest part of the funnel. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of selection that happens after that point. So, um, and even with some of our on-campus programs, you know, there was essays that they would write, there would be transcripts that they would send in just for those types of programs. And so those were based on much more solid types of information mm-hmm. than you get with any of the PSAT or, you know, and it, it's not just the PSAT where you do have those scores, but also, um, you know, there are different magazines that we would advertise in and things of that nature. And mm-hmm. those would produce those types of uh, leads as well. And in those cases, you had even less information about the student. Right, right. Well, and you, I would assume you're also marketing to the students who have added themselves to your mailing list, right? So they have already indicated an interest. And so you're going to, of course, reach out to them because you know that they're interested in you. Exactly. And try to cultivate that interest even more. So, you know, at Drexel, we, you know, if there was a student who was interested in our engineering program and they were putting on an open house, um, you know, then we would market to those students directly about those events and see if uh, that would add to their P count, right? If they'd be interested enough to come see it. Right. Um, So that was, yeah, so that's definitely part of it. I mean, once you kind of go another step or two beyond that funnel, then, you know, we're still kind of engaged in that campaign, but we're not quite to the point where we're at an application and can see kind of the full student. Right, right, exactly. And I think that is really the key. And um, any thoughts? I don't know if uh, we should have talked about this beforehand, but you know, a lot of schools will, uh, one of their big marketing things that I know because somehow they're coming all to my email address are right. all the like, we have a special offer, a special application that your child can fill out. It's a priority application, um, you know, just for your child. Did you guys, did you do any of that? Um, at Drexel specifically? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, the whole idea behind that type of campaign was just to make it as easy as possible to have an application come in, right? Yep. And so um, basically try to eliminate any barriers that that student might feel um, in the application process. And part of the reason for that is that, and this is the case at a lot of colleges and universities, is that applications, even if they're not the type of student that you want to um, eventually take, all of those applications help your numbers and they help you in U.S. News and World Reports right? and those types of calculations. So the more applications they get, the perceived um, value of that school or interest in that school, and that helps everything from admissions all the way down to, you know, their um, 
bond rating for Moody's, right? So there's a lot of repercussions to that uh, that number. And so it's not always just trying to create that funnel, but you also want a wide top to that funnel if you can as well. Right, right. And uh, just a shout out here to why we are, in many cases, down on ratings and rankings here. And, you know, people love U.S. News and World Report. But what you need to recognize is that when you bemoan the fact that colleges are trying so hard to generate more and more applications every year, that a big piece of that, applications that they will turn away, a huge piece of that is how much better that helps them look on U.S. News and World Report. So essentially, we're turning over this huge important thing and allowing a magazine, which by the way, only now exists just for these rankings, to have such incredible influence and impact over how admissions is done. And it's not a positive, people. It's not a positive. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, I just wish we could all get away from the rankings. I really, really do. But uh, all right, moving on. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned the P-score. And of course, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own child who I've been encouraging to open emails. And now I'm thinking, have I encouraged this enough? I talk about this all the time with my students. But, you know, you're getting all this mail. What should you be doing with it? Assuming it's a school you're interested in. If it's a school you're not interested in, by all means, toss it. Recycle it if you can, right? But um, if it's a school you're interested in, what should students be doing with this mail? So I think if there's a way to register your information, um, and so it's whether it's following a link or sending in a card or whatever it might be, um, that by doing that, you're connecting yourself with that um, institution in a way that may be useful for you as the applicant as well. Right. So um, if there's a, a, a virtual program that's taking place, uh, Bucknell did one uh, back in the, in the spring for their engineering students. Um, and it was a really good program. Uh, and they had breakout rooms with uh, their current students. So prospective students could talk to them and find out more about what that program felt like, what the workload was like, and why they like Bucknell, why they choose that program. And it helps them. So when they sit down to write that Why Bucknell essay that they need to write, then they've got real details and can make a personal connection to that school. So those opportunities, I think, uh, can be valuable. But I think you're absolutely right. For the ones, uh, for those schools that you have no interest in, no, you're not going to apply to, don't bother, right? Right. Um, It's just going to increase the number of mailings that you get. However, if you do have a mild interest or a more specific interest in school, it can open up opportunities for you as well. Right. Absolutely. So, um, and especially in these days when it's much more difficult to visit um, and you may not be able to do that, that's also a way to kind of at least try to make up for that fact. Um, And, you know, again, I'm thinking about the fact that my son went and visited a few schools, but didn't do an official information session and tour because they weren't available. Um, And in my head, well, he's visited, he's seen it. And I'm realizing they don't know that. So, um, you know, at a few of the schools, I think they don't care. They're they're not worrying about that. But I know that at some of the schools, they are. And so when he gets home today, we'll be talking a little bit more about how he needs to be doing this. Uh, so this is a good reminder for me. Um, for our listeners, if they're interested, so... Um, Back in April, April 22nd to be exact, and so if you wanted to go back and watch this, uh, the podcast that we did a whole 
hour-long podcast on who gets in and why year in college admissions with Jeff Salingo, who wrote this book. Um, and if you're curious and want to learn more about the whole marketing piece and how this evolved over time, I think it's pretty fascinating. The entire first chapter of his book is actually devoted to that. So um, if you haven't read the book, uh, I would encourage you to pick it up and read that if you want to learn more. Um, any final thoughts on the whole marketing stuff and, and whether or not to get excited when you see that mail from a college or, you know, kind of how to properly think about it? Well, actually, uh, one anecdote that I think is um, kind of an illustration of this is that one of the students that I work with at, at Drexel, um, very high P count, very high interest in, in the school. And when she went to, um, and, you know, her mom was a single parent, affording the school was not going to be easy for them. Right. And so, you know, they went into that negotiation phase um, and said, you know, we just need, you know, this this type of money. But because she had such a high fee count mm -hmm. and we knew she was really, really interested in the school, that helped sway that argument. Yeah. Right. So she got the money that she needed in order to be a student the next year. So it's more than just kind of the admission side of things um, that this can have a, an effect on. So. You know, again, if you're really interested in the school, these are good things to follow up with. Absolutely. Totally agree. And um, yeah, I think just some great insight here. And Ken and I really appreciate you joining the show and, and sharing all of that insight with us. It's been my pleasure. All right. Awesome. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are getting to your questions. So you couldn't possibly go away because we might answer your question. Uh, so please stick around. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're doing listener questions today. And as is so often the case, my colleague Shannon Vasconcellos is joining me for these. Shannon not only works with me here, but is also a former financial aid officer at both Boston University and Tufts University. Hi, Shannon. 
Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. It feels like it's been a long time since we did these and it's probably been literally like, I don't know, four weeks. Probably. <laughs> probably. Anyway, I just want a shout out for both Shannon and me in that this is the first time in a year and a half I maybe maybe even longer than that truly that I am taping this podcast from my home and nobody else is home. Yay. And Shannon, your two young children are at school. They are at school. Yay. Exactly. Just started back this week. It's very exciting. I was telling you before the show. I still have the husband home with me. I haven't removed all distractions, but it's gotten a lot better. But it's gotten better. So that's good. And presumably he needs a little bit less attention than your kids do, but... Marginally, yes. Marginally. Okay. So, well, you've dimed him out. You've done it all yourself. I don't have to feel bad here. Uh, and if you think you've tuned into the marriage counseling show... <laughs> well, you're right. You may- well, you may be right. You may be right. <laughs> All right. So um, we do have questions today, although I would say um, to our listeners, we'll take more. Um, We would love your questions. You can post them on LinkedIn. You could post them on Instagram. You can post them on our Facebook page. You could private message uh, them to us on any of those platforms. You can email them to us at gettingin at gmail.com. I have a feeling. Hold on. Let me go. I know I have this email address. I always address forget here. it. It's, I do too. It's not quite right. <laughs> gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. I don't know why it has to be so long, but it is gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. This is why. Just follow us on Instagram, and then you can shoot us the question. It's super easy that way. Um, before we jump into the questions, I actually, um, this is the time of year, September, where I think that college admissions stress uh emerges in a way that is probably at its most intense level for September and October and a little bit in November and December. But for these two months, things get a little crazy. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to share an, a story about something and use it as a way to talk a little bit more about what pa- parents and students sometimes think colleges are doing and what really they are doing. Um, so I'm working with a student who um, applied to college last year, applied to probably a much larger list than he normally would have. And the reason for that was it was really based on the pandemic. He hadn't been able to visit any schools. And um, we tried really hard to get the list narrowed down and to be more focused, but he just couldn't do it. And the end results, I think, A, showed a little bit from... Uh, they didn't turn out that well. And one of the reasons was definitely, I think, that the list was too big. Um, But the other reason, too, was simply that it was a crazy year. And so some schools that we really felt probably could have turned out that he could have gotten into, it didn't happen. And so what he wound up doing is turning down his offers, and he's going to be reapplying to a much smaller group. uh, And he's also going to be doing early decision, which he could not do last year for a few different reasons. One of them being he hadn't visited anywhere, right? So you never want to commit. And since that time, he's been able to go back and visit some schools and see them firsthand. And one has really emerged as a favorite. And his dad thought it would be a great idea for him to reach out to his admissions officer to essentially provide an update because he did apply to this school last year. He was waitlisted. And to say, you know, hey, I'm going to be applying in the early decision round. And um, I just wanted to let you know. And in this situation, 
the dad and I had a conversation about what I thought was appropriate and what dad was wanting him to do. And they were mm-hmm. two different things. And but what emerged from the conversation was dad's concern that the school understand that this was a serious application and it wasn't just well, you know, COVID and, you know, I I just, you know, I'm, I've decided I'm going to apply. And, you know, my take was that colleges are not spending, when you're reading a file as an admissions officer, you're not spending a lot of time trying to dig into what this, what is this student applying early decision really mean? You know what you think right. it really means? They really want to go to your school. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> right. And so like we you're not sitting there thinking, well, they're in the early decision pool because of what happened last year. And it's not a very thoughtful choice. It's just a, nobody has time for that. You are, you need to get through a stack of files or on this case, you know, these files on your computer and you're mostly taking the application at face value. And so what I really was encouraging the students to do is really pour all that energy and effort. Stop worrying about what the admissions officer is going to add to what they think about your mindset and instead use that energy to do well on the application. Give it your best effort, right? Same thing when it comes to, well, the school is test optional, but what will they think when I don't submit scores? They'll think you chose to use the test optional option. They're not going to spend a ton of time thinking, and, and I think the key here is marking them, like giving you points against your acceptance because you chose not to submit scores. It's simply a piece of the application that isn't there for them to consider. They're not going to be, can say, well, they must not have done well on those. And therefore, this is somehow a less than application. Um, It's very possible the student didn't take the test, even if they came from a well-to-do area where everybody takes the test, even if the test was available. The school is test optional. If you didn't take the test or you didn't do well enough that your score is not going to be helpful to you, then don't submit it and don't worry about the rest of it. Um, yeah. so, you know, so I think the, my general message is don't don't spend a lot of time focusing on what you think the college admissions officers are going to f- infer from choices. And I was curious if there was any finance side similar thing that that might occur to you when I tell this story. Yeah, I be, what I keep thinking of is people who've, they may have, you know, made a good amount of money in one year on the financial aid application, and they're convinced that the financial aid office thinks they've always made so much money, but really they just got, you know, a promotion right. four years ago, and but they've spent the first, you know, 13 years of their child's life making very little money. The same as with the admissions officers. They're really not thinking this hard. They're looking at the information in front of them, making a decision based on that information. The only way that I think it might be a little different, though maybe not all that different, the thing that comes to mind is if a financial aid officer does notice what is legally known in the financial aid world is conflicting information, mm-hmm. they are required if they award any federal student aid to resolve any conflicting information. So if they see two pieces of information on a financial aid application that don't jive, 
they are required to figure out what's going on there. So an example would be you put two different amounts of money uh, on the FAFSA and on the profile form. Mm-hmm. If they see that they need to resolve that somehow, they need to figure out what money you actually have. Um, some colleges would consider the fact that you maybe reported having zero money in the bank, but they might have requested a tax return where they see you earned thousands of dollars in interest income. That Mm -hmm. may on the surface be conflicting information because how did you earn thousands of dollars in interest income if you didn't, if you have no money in the bank on the surface, there's a conflict there that the financial aid office has to resolve. Though, frankly, that would only be noticed at kind of the, um, richest, more selective private schools that have the staff to look into these things. Frankly, at most um, universities, even that would not really go, they're not requesting tax returns and that would honestly go unnoticed. So yeah, for the most part, very short amount of time with admissions applications and with financial aid applications to get through a whole bunch of them. They're not psychoanalyzing you. They're not delving deep into your history. They're just looking at the information in front of them, making a decision based on that. Right. And well, and just to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly too, if they see conflicting information and they are required to resolve it, they don't make up what they think is the resolution. (laughs) They actually look for the res right they look Correct. for the data they might ask you why are these two things conflicting they're not going to say well i think what probably happened here is they're lying or what happened must yes. it must be this you're exactly going to actually right. they find will out. ask for yes. documentation so if you reported two different incomes let's see the w2 to see your actual income or right. in the case with the assets not matching up with the interest income either show me, you know, show me a bank statement that shows that you have zero money in the bank or um, tell me, did you just make a mistake there? Or maybe there is a very legitimate reason. I had a bunch of money in the bank and I just bought a house and now Mm -hmm. all that money is gone. Great. Just show me, you know, the purchase and sale and we are done here. Fabulous. We're not going to make assumptions that you're lying. We are going to find what, try to find what is the accurate information and then we can proceed. Nobody wants to hold up a financial aid application. Right. We, we want everything to match up perfectly because we've got, you know, a pile, uh, you know, a hundred right. papers high that we're trying to get through. So we're not looking to, to hold up anyone's application. Um, we just are legally required to find the accurate information. So occasionally there's a conflict most of the time. Um, it's sort of just stamp of approval and we move on. Perfect. Okay. Let's jump into questions now. We have one two, that comes to us from Tiffany, and this is for you. Uh, I love these questions that start with, I've heard that. If you are a listener <laughs> to this podcast, you know that my immediate reaction when someone starts with, I've heard that is, you should from there on be prepared to hear a myth, a half truth, yeah. something that's not right. So anyway, Tiffany says, I've heard that the FAFSA is going to be changing in the future. Actually, that's true. Look at that. Tiffany is right. (laughs) That's right. When is that happening and what can we expect? Yeah, so Tiffany is absolutely right that what happened was um, one of the COVID relief bills that passed actually back at the end of 2020 included in this a big old section um, called FAFSA simplification that is scheduled to change the FAFSA in that bill was actually scheduled to, the change was scheduled to take place for the 23-24 school year. Um, The Department of Education 
has since said we will not be able to make these changes on time and it has been postponed to the 24-25 school year. So we still have a few years to go before any changes take place. Um, but a really the good part of the change is that the based on the title of the of the bill, <laughs> you may surmise the FAFSA is being simplified. It is being greatly reduced from the current 108 questions to only 36 questions, I believe it is, on the FAFSA. Hmm. So that is a wonderful thing for students and families. It will make the FAFSA much, much easier to complete. It will should not be such a stressful process. Um, among the questions that are leaving, one's about selective service, um, uh, registration, um, drug convictions, those are going away. Those won't affect financial aid anymore. Um, questions about untaxed income. Uh, I've had a number of conversations about this. Uh, if you have a grandparent or non-custodial parent paying for college that shows up as student untaxed income, those questions are going away. That will mm -hmm. no longer affect um, at least federal financial aid eligibility. Um, some less good <laughs> changes. Yeah. Uh, at least for some folks, um, who is considered a, the custodial parent is going to change. It has been the parent that you live with the most. It's going to be the parent who provides more support, but we're still awaiting details on how exactly that's going to be interpreted. Um, exclusions for small businesses, small family-owned businesses. You didn't used to have to report their value. You will have to report their value. They're not being excluded anymore. And the one that has is most upsetting, I think, to most yeah. people is the splitting of the expected family contribution between among all enrolled children in the family is going away. So um, currently, you know, if your parents are expected to contribute $30,000 towards college and they have two kids in college, that becomes an <coughs> EFC of $15,000 a piece, opens up more financial aid eligibility for each child uh, under the new system that expected family contribution, with they're also changing the name of that to student aid index, um, that contribution is not being split anymore. So that $30,000 contribution will be $30,000 for child A and $30,000 for child B. So you may end up having to pay double if you have two kids in college at the same time than you would have under the old system. Um, right. Parents very upset about this, understandably. I have two kids myself. I'll be in <laughs> right. the same situation. I'm not thrilled with it. Um, but the one thing I will say is that they are still going to ask on the FAFSA how many kids you have in college. It will, the number will not be taken into account for federal financial aid purposes. However, colleges are allowed to do whatever they want in determining eligibility for their own institutional financial aid, the money from the college itself. And it really remains to be seen how colleges are going to adapt this change to their institutional aid or not. Um, I can definitely see it sort of going both ways. College is saying, oh, it'll save me money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to split that EFC. On the other hand, if I'm, you know, college one and I'm chosen not to split the EFC, so my college is more expensive to people and college two down the street decides they will continue to split the EFC, that college becomes a better deal. College one is going to lose students to college two. So there'll be a competitive pressure there that might get colleges to keep the, the, 
the um, adjustment for number in college. So that remains to be seen, but that is certainly one uh, change in terms of FAFSA simplification that folks are not thr- thrilled with, unfortunately. Right, right. And I'll just throw out there that the reason, the idea behind this is that fairness, right? So if you had right. two kids that were four years apart, they were never going to be in school at the same time. You were going to ultimately pay 30000 for each kid. Yes. So the fact that you had them closer together was getting you a discount is that fair? Is that not fair? I have one kid. I have no horse in this race. I see both <laughs> perspectives yeah. is, you know, what I can say there. All right, Shannon, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to go to more of these questions. So don't go away. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everyone. We have lots of questions, and we're going to get right to them. Shannon, I think you have one for me. Yes, uh, this question is from Julie that she submitted uh, through our Instagram page, and she writes, the Common App asks the student whether the parent works for a college or university. I do work for a university, and my son has absolutely no interest in attending that university and is not applying there. I am concerned colleges will read the yes response and assume he'll attend my university, holding this against his application. I think this probably gets a little bit to what we were talking about. I think it does. (laughs) In terms of making assumptions about what the college is going to think, and they're probably thinking very little. But let's clarify that for Julie. Is this the case? Does my son need to include a message that he is not applying to the university where his mom works? And just because I'm curious, do you know why this is a question on the Common App? Thank you. Okay, so Julie, short answer, no, the colleges are not going to infer that he is only interested in your school because you work there. And no, he does not need to include a message uh, stating that he is not planning to attend that school. So going back to what I was talking about in the previous segment, the admissions officer is taking the application at face value. Um, If he's applying to colleges where they are 
tracking demonstrated interest. If you listened to the first segment today, there was a lot of good stuff there about how to engage with the marketing, get on the school's mailing list. And there are lots of ways to show demonstrated interest. And if you if he's been doing that uh, and he does a nice job on the application, they're not going to reject him out of hand because they think he's already committed to you. So to your school. So we'll get that out of the way. Uh, the reason that the college, uh, that the Common App, I believe that the reason they asked this question is because of something called the Tuition Exchange Program. I'm going to give a shout out to my colleague, Jen Simons, who was the first to respond when I said, does anybody know why the college board, or sorry, the Common App asks this question? Um, and this was her take. So the Tuition Exchange Program uh, is essentially a group of colleges who have all agreed that they will offer discounts to students of people who work at other institutions, right? So one of the big things that at a lot of schools, colleges, that used to be a thing. So when I worked at Penn, I had a tuition discount at Penn um, for me and at the time for my child. I have no idea if that still exists. A lot of the colleges have started to scale back on those programs because they're fairly expensive. Um, but the deal was if you couldn't use it at the school that you worked at, because let's say it's a place like Penn and lots of kids are not going to get in, um, they, the, a bunch of schools got together and formed this tuition exchange program so that you could use a discount, maybe it's a similar discount, discount, typically not the same discount, um, but I suppose it could be, at a different institution that maybe your student is more interested in and actually could get accepted to. So one of the things you might want to think about, Julie, is does your does your institution offer a tuition benefit? And if so, is it portable? Or is there something that you he could use at a different institution? He might want to check that out. Um, but as I understand it, the participants in the tuition exchange program asked that this question be added to the Common App so that they could track it. I think the other thing that we hear, um, I certainly something that I would notice is that, you know, all of the applications that came into Penn where the if the parent worked at the institution, they were already tagged as faculty staff, um, but that would help with the tag so that you would know if it hadn't been flagged, ooh, this person works for um, this institution, you know, if you're a reader, if they work for our school and you want to make sure that they get that tag so that they're appropriately, um, yes, highlighted. Cool. Perfect. All right. Um, so Shannon, Suzanne asks, I've been out of college for about four years and was paying on my federal student loans. I have seven loans and I'm wondering if I should refinance or consolidate them. Please advise. Is there enough information to advise here? Yeah, so I'm not going to tell Suzanne, unfortunately. Sorry, I'm not going to tell you necessarily which one or none of those things to do, but I can hopefully provide a little bit of clarification. Um, first of all, Suzanne asked, should I refinance or consolidate them? Just to clarify the difference between those two programs. When you refinance student loans, you're typically taking your student loans from whatever lender they are with now, whatever kinds of student loans you have now, you are totally paying off those loans and taking out one big kind of new loan with a new lender that pays off all your old loans. So now you have a new loan, new lender. Um, and you do that generally through the private market. Uh, new interest rate, all new terms to your loan. 
consolidation, the federal loan consolidation program, your federal student loans remain federal student loans. Um, they are just all kind of put now into one big loan, but they still retain all of the existing federal student loan benefits. So that's a big um, decision point there. Do you take any federal loans out of the federal program, put them into a private loan, and therefore give up all of the federal student loan benefits? Again, new interest rate, maybe higher or lower. And so, mm -hmm. so often folks are tempted to refinance because they're offered a lower interest rate in the private market. And it may be a very legitimate decision to take that private lender up on that offer and refinance your loans if it's a significant discount in terms of the interest rate. But you do want to acknowledge you're giving up federal student loan benefits, including, you know, deferment options if you go back to school, um, including, again, whatever interest rate you have, death and disability cancellation. Um, those sorts of things may go away when you basically change your loans into a private loan, public service loan forgiveness goes away. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this may be a particular, it's sort of always been a concern and something to think about, but now when there's a lot of talk uh, in the government about potential loan forgiveness, um, some of the talk, I think, or some of the assumptions, I talk to a lot of people every day who are you know, planning on borrowing student loans mm -hmm. to pay for the next school year, and they're kind of unconcerned about borrowing because they're like, oh, the government's just going to forgive all that. Mm. Not so fast. <laughs> yeah. There's, there, I think the possibility of forgiveness, student loan forgiveness, is kind of better now than it has been in recent memory, but it is certainly not a slam dunk. There is still tons and tons of disagreement um, within the government, um, within even, you know, the Democrats kind of control Congress and the White House. That's considered a good thing for the student loan forgiveness. But even among the Democrats, tons of disagreement on whether or not there should be any forgiveness. If right. so, how, how much? much? And yeah. And who? Exactly. Yeah. Could be, uh, <clears throat> if it happens at all, which I am not sure. I'm nowhere sure about it happening at right. all. If it does, there may be restrictions put on it in terms of types of loans and income limits, all sorts of things could happen. Having said all that, mm -hmm. it is, you know, it's a possibility that's out there. If you take those loans out of the federal program into the private market, much less likely to be forgiven. So I think you want to be kind of extra careful with with refinancing these days. Uh, in terms of consolidation, you keep your federal loans, not a huge downside, not a huge upside though, because you're not getting a new interest rate. What, what happens when you consolidate federal loans, they just do a weighted average of all of the interest rates of all of the loans. Um, so you're just getting an average interest rate of what you already have. Um, so not a big upside, you're not getting a much lower interest rate or anything like that. Can be helpful for some people if you've borrowed loans, federal loans at different times, at different colleges. Sometimes your loans are held by different servicers and you have like separate billing that can be confusing. If it's confusing to you and you want to consolidate um, because it helps you get organized and just get one bill, that's totally fine to do. You will um, the Also, if you have very, very old loans, sometimes through what's called the FELP program, when you borrowed federal student loans through a, a private bank, that was many, many years ago. But if you still have some of those older loans, um, consolidating them into the direct loan program can help as well. Um, but again, kind of pros and cons to consolidating and refinancing, and again, may not be necessary at, at all. But those are what you want to think about. And again, just be careful before turning federal loans private, uh, because you do lose some benefits when you do that. 
All right, cool. Okay, and the next question for you, Beth, is from Amy. And Amy asks, for the kids who will truly blossom in college rather than high school, how do you use their less stellar high school stats and social activities to find a school where they can continue to grow and not get bored by going to a less competitive school? Hmm. I don't totally know what Amy's asking here. I am going to infer, which I probably shouldn't, <laughs> that I think what she means is how can my child take the things he does outside of the classroom, which maybe, maybe, are, I, I actually don't know. So I'm going to take a step back and say, if that's what you're asking, if it's that your child is doing really interesting things outside of the classroom, but maybe has been less successful in the classroom, can I leverage what he's doing outside? Or can he leverage that in order to get into a more selective school than his grades would indicate? Kind of depends, depends on what we're talking about here, right? So if the question is, can he do that and get into Penn? Probably not. Can he do that and get from, you know, go to, gosh, I don't even know off the top of my head, like go to a Drexel rather than, um, you know, one of the, the um, satellite campuses at Penn State? Possibly, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure though if that's entirely what you're asking. So instead, what I'm gonna go to is the whole idea that the student is gonna get bored at a school that was easier to get into. Because I think that is the biggest leap ever. And I would I can't stress enough how important it is not to make that leap. There are amazing programs and wonderful professors and wonderful students at all of the institutions in this country. And um, these are places, there are so many places where students can blossom in college. And so the idea that you're gonna get bored if you're not at a school where it is incredibly hard to get into, um, highly rejective to steal a phrase that is growing in popularity, um, is simply false. I, I don't know any other way to say it than that. So what I would encourage is for you, for your child to be thinking more about what am I really interested in? What do I want to explore? What is the environment in which your child is going to blossom? So is it one, you know, where in the world is that? Is it a small school? Is it a big school? Is it, you know, thinking about those factors that are going to really lead to him being I keep saying him, I think she said son, but I probably should, to your child, um, being comfortable and feeling challenged, but also competent and where there are the things that they wanna study are there. Um, and if they change their mind, there are more options for them to pursue. So it's not super narrowly focused. Um, and I would say that, you know, you, the student, your student could blossom at a school and emerge as a big fish in a smaller pond and get lots of attention and resources from professors and really just find a place where they really are going to blossom and not ever get bored. Um, conversely, they could wind up at a place that's too difficult where all the other students are so much more accomplished that they start to or continue maybe to feel a little intimidated and the opportunity to blossom doesn't happen because they are so 
you know, just, wow, everyone else is so much more accomplished than I am. So I would really, though, above and beyond everything else, step away from the idea that a school that is a little bit less difficult to get into is somehow, therefore, not a school that offers a good education, not a school where a student will be challenged simply because they're coming into their own when they're there, I would say that might make it a great place for them to come into their own. So a little tricky. Um, we have time for like a minute uh, <laughs> response. So let me see yeah. if uh, if there's you can, a- You can yeah. probably do Shafiq's question. Okay, Shafiq asks, my son just started his senior year of high school and is working on his college applications. Well, when do we need to complete the FAFSA? Yes. Yeah, relatively quick answer. The FAFSA opens up on October 1st. That's the soonest you can complete the form. Do not get worked up. I know there are some parents who are you know, online at midnight on October 1st. It's got to be the first ones in there. You don't have to get stressed out about that. You need to make sure that you meet the college's deadlines, which can come up anywhere between really November and March. So just find out when your deadlines are. Make sure you get the FAFSA in. But October 1st is the soonest you can do it. There are some schools that that may begin to get kind of less generous as the months tick by, even if their deadline's not till March, maybe they review their budget and find they're running short of funds and, and may start to get a little bit less generous. Um, so for that reason, generally the earlier the better. Sometime in October is great. Don't worry about doing it on the first. Let them work, actually work the kinks out before you, uh, right. before you log in maybe a week or two later, but probably sometime in October is great. Okay, awesome. Shannon, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. All right. Next week, Ian is hosting. We're gonna, he's going to be talking about AP Capstone uh, college list, having a balanced college list, um, covering the remaining college bills, the remaining balance on the college bills. Um, lastly, don't forget, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So the more we get, the easier it is for people to find us. So if you think this is a helpful podcast, we would love for you to review us and, and make it so that more people can find us. And if you have questions, don't forget, you can post them on our social media, but you could also send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com. And we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.